0: Our scripture reading today is from Acts 4.32, 5.11. This is found on page 9.12 and 9.13 in your pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take the one in front of you as a gift from us. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of my things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, that uh, kind of a text will wake you up even on a Daylight Savings morning, right? I mean, that's pretty intense how that text ends. And uh, this is actually one of the reasons why at Christ Community we, we preach through whole books of the Bible because I can assure you um, that I was just thinking, what passage would I like to teach uh, this morning? I, I wouldn't have picked one that included teaching about money and instantaneous divine judgment all in all in one passage. That wouldn't have been my first uh, choice, if I was just flipping through, uh, thinking about a passage I'd like to teach this morning. Um, but because we we do uh, teach through whole books of the Bible, uh, seeking to understand what God is saying to us uh, in every part of the scriptures, uh, we find ourselves here this morning, and uh, I'm excited to look at it together. And uh, some of you may already have uh, some questions, maybe pretty skeptical, um, but at least I hope you're interested uh, this morning and thinking what's he going to say about this? Uh, I'm curious, how is he going to handle this? Um, so let's, uh, before uh, we do that, let's pray and ask for wisdom from God to how to do that well this morning here together. So Father in heaven, we're thankful that you have uh, given us your word. And we, uh, I hope that and pray that we do mean each week when we repeat that refrain of this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Um, that we are truly indeed thankful, uh, even in passages that make us scratch our head or, or cause us to, um, to wonder what in the world is going on here. And I pray now that as we look at this passage together, that you uh, would be at work speaking clearly to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Yale theologian Miroslav Wolf, in his book, Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace, He points out that there are uh, kind of three sort of postures that you can take uh, toward resources that you have in the world and uh, and even people in the world. And that is you can take the posture of a taker, a trader, or a giver. A taker, a trader, or a giver. And, and takers are those who uh, only seek to extract value uh, from the world and those in it without making any contribution to it. And so you have a, a thief or a robber is sort of the, the purest form of a taker, right? If, if someone steals $100 from you, they, they have $100 and now you don't. That their gain comes at the price of, of your loss. They're, they're takers. And you probably don't have to uh, think hard to come up with examples of, of people who have taken that taking posture in the world. And I think we can all recognize without too much reflection that, that the posture of being a taker does not lead to human flourishing. But then there's the next category of being a, a trader. Uh, and, and the trading mentality says, I have stuff, that I can exchange with others to get stuff that I want. So, you know, I I have $100 and I want a watch. So I can go to the store and give them $100 and they give me a watch and and, and we both get something that we want. Now, as an economic system, trade is, is brilliant and it's produced amazing flourishing and wealth in our world. But if we try to apply that same trading mentality from an economic system into our relationships with one another, with God and our giving and in our generosity, it will inevitably lead to sort of a, a rotting from the inside out. Because if we only give of, our, of ourselves, our time, our money, our relationships, our access, et cetera, if we only give of those things in our relationships when we perceive that there's something in it for us, we will find ourselves in a state of of futility, of slowly turning more and more in on ourselves. But the posture of the giver looks at the world that God has made and and sees abundance. Givers look to others and are willing to offer themselves and and what they have without expectation of something in return. And in this passage this morning from the book of Acts, we are going to see the, the futility of being a traitor and the freedom that comes with being a giver, the futility of being a traitor, and the the freedom that comes with being a giver. And then we're going to see at the very end the gift that can move us from being traitors to givers. So we're going to see the futility, the freedom, and then the gift. So first, in the account of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, we see the futility of being a traitor because Ananias and Sapphira weren't in the purest sense takers. They, in fact, it's clear in the story that they actually gave a significant amount. You know, the, the issue with Ananias and Sapphira wasn't with what they gave or even with what they didn't give. The issue was that they tried to accomplish something other than generosity with their gift. They wanted to trade resources for for reputation, for influence, for maybe for access, and it led them to a deadly deceit. So let's take a closer look at the story and it's clear that the, that at the end of Acts 4 is actually the beginning of the story. The first part of Acts 5 and the last part of Acts chapter 4 are, are meant to go together. And this is where it's important to remember that the chapter and verse divisions that we have in our Bibles, while they're they're really helpful… Uh, aren't part of the original um, writings of of the text. They aren't God-inspired or even part of what the original authors put in. So uh, they were added later just as a a reference tool to help us be able to all get on the same page. I say Acts chapter 5 and you can turn quickly and we can all be in the same spot. And for the most part, chapter and verse divisions are just that, a really helpful tool. But sometimes they can lead us to, to see a division in the text that is sort of artificial. And this is one of those places where really the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 go hand in hand. They're linked closely together. And so at the end of Acts chapter 4, Luke gives us another one of these summary statements that he gives us throughout the book of kind of a statement about what the life of the community is like. And he points out this incredible dynamic of generosity in this new Christian community that is sustaining it and allowing it to flourish in this early, fragile stage. Again, this community is only a few months old. Jesus has just risen from the dead. This thing is just getting started. And Luke describes how people were bringing the proceeds of sale from property and homes to be deployed in service of the community. And again, as we go on, we're going to see this really clearly. But this wasn't compulsory giving. This wasn't required giving. It wasn't the result uh, of some kind of central control. This isn't a, a, a proto sort of communist kind of system. It, it's the result of people seeing needs in the community and then selling to, to meet those needs. So, this is the stage onto which Ananias and Sapphira walk. In Acts chapter 5. And, and the two of them decide together. They say, let's, let's sell this piece of property that we have and use the proceeds to buy sort of reputation or status or access. Now maybe they didn't quite say it like that together, and the text doesn't tell us exactly what their internal motivations and thoughts were. But it's clear from the passage that they want to appear as though they are giving the entire proceeds of the land sale when in fact they're only giving a part. So so look again at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the proceeds of the land? And this is key, where we see this is not obligatory and it's not mandatory that they gave all of it. Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Nobody's making you sell this. It was yours before it was sold and after it was sold. Was it not at your disposal? Even after you sold it, you didn't have to give the money or all of it. Why is it that you conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So, so do you see what I mean in this text? It, isn't it clear that they, they didn't have to sell this land in the first place? No one's forcing them to do this. Peter makes it very clear. When it was, before it was sold, it was yours. Even after you sold it. The, the money was yours. No one, you don't have to give this. Again, the issue was not with what they gave or even how they gave. The issue was what they, that they thought that they could trade money for reputation. They thought they could trade some of the money for a perception of they giving all of it. They wanted to trade part to gain the status of someone who is known in the community as a, as a great benefactor. And in their quest for this, they conceive a plan that gives birth to a lie that leads to death. And did you notice the language of heart in those first four verses? It occurs twice there. And in the Bible it uses the language of heart quite a bit. And when in twenty kind of first century English, when we hear the word heart, we often think of sort of more of uh, strictly emotions or, or affections. But in the biblical conception of the language of heart, it includes it includes emotions, it includes feelings, but it also includes sort of this decision-making center of who we are. It's our mind, our emotions, the place within us as human beings that we decide, the control center of our lives. And Peter asked them, why have you contrived, why have you planned this thing in your heart? The heart is the place where we we make plans, where we make decisions. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they treasured, reputation, status, access. And they think they can trade money to get it, money to get what they treasure above all else. And this trading mentality leads them to construct a lie, a lie that is straight from the supernatural personification of evil uh, Peter says it, Satan, the accuser, has tempted you. He's put this idea in your heart. And when you look at the biblical storyline of who this personal personification of evil is in the story of Scripture, Satan himself, he, this is what he's always doing. Right from the very beginning, in the garden with Eve, Genesis chapter 3, he tempts her to trade her loyalty to God. For the ability to decide right and wrong on her own for herself. Satan tempts Jesus during his fasting in the wilderness to trade his allegiance to the Father for power without sacrifice. He tempts Ananias and Sapphira with the same thing: that you can gain reputation, you can gain status, you can gain access without making the full sacrifice of the kind of gift that opens this in the community. Before you know it, it's done. The land is sold, the proceeds divided, the lie is told. But God is not deceived. He can't be deceived, and he will not allow deceit to poison the new community that he is forming. And he acts swiftly and decisively in this moment because this young, fragile church community, it's facing all kinds of threats from the outside. And now a threat arises threatening its its viability from the inside. And now clearly this, this moment is, is extraordinary and, and it's shocking to us. It causes great fear among them. Again, twice the text says it caused great fear, understandably, right? People are falling down dead right there in the middle. of This is, yeah, a moment for great fear. But I think the question for us as we look at this text is why does God do this so severely with them right here in this moment? Why does he strike these people down for, for a lie? And the first thing we have to say when we try to answer that question is that the text doesn't explicitly tell us, because I looked for an explanatory footnote from Luke this week in my Bible, uh, believe me, and it's not there. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is why God was so severe in his judgment in this moment. But there are a few thoughts I think that can help us wrestle with what's going on in this passage Because first, again, to be clear, this this judgment isn't a result of what they gave or didn't give or how much they gave or how much they didn't give. The the, the judgment in this moment doesn't have anything to do with with the gift itself. It's because of the lie. Because they tried to mock God. Because they thought that they could do something that, that God wouldn't find out about. And that sort of deceit and manipulation is deadly to any community, but especially to this, this little fledgling local church at the very beginning. This community's hanging by a thread. It's just a couple months old. People from all over the parts of the Roman Empire, they come together, they're just trying to make it work. God is establishing this new community of people, the very place where his presence dwells on earth amongst this group of people by the power of his Spirit. And you see, just like a couple of weeks ago when we saw the miracle of a man who was born without the ability to walk and now he's 40 plus years old and and he's healed instantly by Peter. Just as we saw in that miracle a, a picture of what one day God will do for the whole creation, the restoration of all things so too here in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, we get a little glimpse kind of coming forward from the future into the present of what God will do one day in setting all injustice aright, bringing about the restitution of all things. So we see here this unique, extraordinary moment of judgment as a a picture of this coming day when God will set all things right. Because the scriptures are clear from beginning to end that God can't be mocked. He will right all wrongs one day. And and culturally, as as modern, late modern Westerners, we tend to dislike that idea very much that God would be judge. Uh, we, We want to see him as as loving and forgiving and, and merciful. But we have to remember our, our, our own cultural situatedness in this as well because many people around the world today actually have the opposite problem that we do with the Scriptures. They, they actually struggle with how forgiving and loving the Scriptures present God as, especially toward His enemies. And this is where we see that the Bible actually isn't the product of one particular culture, but critiques and challenges every culture. It challenges our culture on the idea that, that there isn't any uh, judgment or, or righting of wrongs, but it also challenges other cultures on, on the idea that God is indeed made way for the forgiveness of even the most heinous of sins. You know, from beginning to end, of the scriptures, God is love and mercy and justice and truth. And I think sometimes, especially if you've grown up around the church, you can almost get this mindset if you've only had kind of cursory exposure to the Bible, that sort of in the Old Testament, you get an angry, wrathful God. And then in the New Testament with Jesus, there's kind of this forgiving, loving God. But when you look carefully at the story of Scripture, and this is one of those moments in the New Testament where we see it so clearly, that we, we see that throughout the Scripture, there's only one God who is holy and abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and also who will not let injustice go undealt with. The new local church community that's just begun, it's mere months old, could only survive as a community of givers a community of transparency and truth and love and openness. It could only thrive. It was filled with men and women and children who gave of themselves freely. And in this early, unique moment, it becomes clear that God is present with this community. And he will not allow lies and injustice to damage, to hinder, to corrupt the people who will bear the good news of the forgiveness of sins at the very ends of the earth. Well, there's a few thoughts on why God acts so swiftly in this moment. You know, but the question for us this morning in Kansas City in 2018 is have we adopted, in our relationships with one another, in our relationship with God, have we adopted the posture of, of trading? You know, the great English preacher Charles Spurgeon once told a story about a farmer, a nobleman, and a king. And in the story, this this poor farmer grows this enormous carrot. It's the best carrot that he's ever ever grown. And he takes it to the king, and and he gives it to him, and he says, King, I I love you so much, and you've been such a faithful king, and you've been so good to us. I just want to give you this, this best carrot that I've ever grown as a gift. The king is thrilled and he just recognizes the generosity of this poor farmer giving this, this amazing gift. And he says, you know, look, you are, I can tell you, you've made this incredible carrot and you're, you're a great farmer. You're very skilled. I want to give you a, the, the best plot of, of gardening land in my palace gardens and, and take care of that for me. Make it fruitful and the farmer is rejoicing, and he's so happy about that. And, and all the while, while this is going on, though, there's a nobleman in the court watching this take place. And he thinks to himself, ah, okay, I see how this can work. I can get this to work in my favor. And so the next day, the, the nobleman comes, and he brings his best stallion to the king. And he says, king, I, I, am, I breed horses, and here is my very best horse I've ever bred. The king simply receives the gifts and says, Thank you, and dismisses him and sends him out. You can tell that the nobleman is perplexed, and so the king explains. He says, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Do you see the difference between a giver and a traitor? He was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse to get something in return. You see, a posture of trading is always driven by the question, what can I get in return? And there is worlds of difference between the freedom that is found in the posture of being a giver and a trading mindset that will always lead to fertility. But there is great freedom found in being a giver. And it was the incredible freedom with which the early church community shared their resources that stunned the ancient world in the first century. Because in the first century world, the economic system was, was dominated by sort of a patronage, quid pro quo model of economics as a community and the expectation was that was completely that of a trading mentality in relationships that the giving of any resource was always tied to some sort of receiving back so i have you over for dinner then you have me over for dinner i introduce you to my powerful friend you introduce me to your powerful friend it was always these trading back and forth even among close friends that was just the expectation that was how it worked The only place where you didn't have that expectation, though, in the first century was in families, among families. And now here you have, in the local church, a group of people who were not biological family. In fact, who were from all different parts of the Roman Empire, who spoke different mother languages, but who were now all gathered together together. Trading or excuse me, treating with one another, sharing, um, treating one another as family. Sharing with one another without any expectation of return as they would with biological family members. And those in the first century, they didn't have, they didn't have a category for this kind of sharing. In in fact, early observers of Christianity note that, that Christians were the exact counter to the broader culture in this way. Because the broader Roman Empire culture, they were incredibly free with their bodies. So, so sleeping with whomever they wanted, whenever they wanted, especially if you were a male of a certain class in that culture. But they were incredibly stingy with their resources, with sharing of their finances. These early observers of Christianity know that the, the Christians though, were the exact Opposite. They were incredibly stingy with their bodies, with sharing their sexuality exclusively in the context of marriage, but they were incredibly liberal with their resources. Giving even to strangers without expectation of return. Giving to one another as though they were family. Uh, Listen to how Luke describes this in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 34. He says this, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And then Luke introduces us to, to this person, Joseph, who's also called Barnabas. Thus, Joseph, who is called by the apostles Barnabas, and we're going to learn a lot more about Barnabas in the story of Acts as we go along, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There was not a needy person among them. They shared without expectation of return as they would with family. And just as Ananias and Sapphira held up as, as a negative example, here Barnabas is given to us as a positive example. And again, we're going to see Barnabas over the course of our journey through Acts as someone who exemplifies the freedom that comes with the posture of a giver. He's liberal in his giving of his finances we see that here but also in his encouragement and in his sacrifice for the mission. He's an incredible picture, example, the kind of person in this early church community. And so the question for us is do we give like family? Do we share like family? Because how do families give and share? At least ideally, right? Do, do they keep track? Do they expect something in return? What if what if my wife Rachel had had a notebook and she tallied up every every meal that she that she cooked for our family? And expected us to even up someday. Or, or what if I kept a logbook of, of all the money that I that I spent on our kids' clothes and then then handed them a bill when they turned 18 and, and asked them to pay up? It's, 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 we, we laugh. It's ridiculous. Right? That's not how families work. You, you give to one another without expectation of return, sacrificing for each other out of love. That's how families work, how they ideally work. And we recognize that when they don't work, like something's really wrong with that, right? And, and the amazing thing about the local church is that it says every single person who is a believer in Jesus is your brother and sister, and that we treat one another like we treat family. And If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted Him, your most enduring human relationship is with those who you call brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom you will spend the rest of eternity. Is this us? Do we give like this? to one another? Do we share with one another like this? Do we give like this to our local church? Do we as a church community have the reputation for being givers to our community? How are are we perceived in the neighborhood? Are we perceived as givers, as traders, as takers? Is this us? I've been a pastor at at Christ Community for uh, nearly eight years now, While I can certainly assure you that we still have a long way to go as individuals and as a community to to become fully what it means to be sacrificial givers in our our neighborhood and and amongst one another, that in these eight years I've also had a front row seat and I'm regularly inspired by the many Barnabas-like people and moments that make Christ's community such an incredibly generous congregation. So thank you for that. Thanks for inspiring and challenging me, giving us all a taste of the freedom that comes with being a giver. Now, now I said at the beginning that we're going to look at the futility of, of trading and the freedom of giving, but also that there's a gift that makes all the difference between the two. So how do we move from being traders To givers, how do we make that move together? What is the gift that transforms? Well, we see it bookended at the beginning of verse thirty-two and the end of verse thirty-three. So, so take a look, starting in verse thirty-two, and then let's read through the end of verse thirty-three. Now, the number, now the full number of those those who believed—that's key. Of those who believed, were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything. The things they had belonged to him as his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace, and great grace was upon them all. You know, verse 32 begins with belief, and verse 33 ends with grace. You see, the gift that transforms traders into givers is the gift of grace, of great grace that comes through belief. Great grace is the source of great generosity. Costly grace is what leads to costly generosity. Because what is the message, right, that's constantly being proclaimed at every turn in the book of Acts? by this new entity called the church. It's the message of the forgiveness of sins, the greatest gift of grace that's ever been given. That God's grace is available to anyone who will put their faith, their trust, their belief in Jesus. You see, only grace can truly make us givers. Only grace can truly make you a giver. You see, God is a terrible trading partner because what's key in any relationship that you're going to trade? You have to have something the other person wants. You don't have anything that God needs. He's a terrible trading partner. He holds all the cards. In fact, you owe him. We all owe him. We have nothing that he needs. And the beauty of that is that it puts us in a posture if we will only take it of being those who receive from him. You don't have anything he needs. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. And and you can't give him even what you owe. You can't trade with God. All you can do is receive from him. And yet so often we try to trade with God. We try to make deals with him. We try to, in sort of ways, say, well, if I just do this, then he'll be happy with me. If I just give that, then, then he'll be pleased with me. Or he will leave me alone. We try to earn favor with him. But Christian, don't you know that God is already pleased with you? In Jesus, he could not be more delighted in you. There's nothing that you can give him. It's going to make him more satisfied with who you are than what Jesus has already done on your behalf in the cross. Receive his grace and favor. Now stop trying to trade. When you stop trying to trade, you will find the freedom to give. Because you know, ultimately, anyone can just kind of give things away, but only grace can make you truly generous. Only grace can allow you to give just for the sake of, of giving because you know that everything you have is a gift, that everything you've been given isn't really yours anyway. How can you tell if you're, if you're giving, if you're sharing, not just of money but of time and influence and leadership in your home, all those things, how can you tell if you're sharing, your giving of those things is driven by grace or by guilt? One of the, the surest indicators of that is that if it's being driven by guilt, you always be looking to give the minimum. The minimum to make God happy. You're always kind of running the calculus what, what do I have to do to have God not mad at me? And then I hope there's a lot left to still have some fun with. <laughs> right? But if it's driven by by grace, you're you're always looking for opportunities. How can I share more of what God has given me? My time, my my relationships, my access, my, my resources, my home. Let your giving be driven by grace, not by guilt. You see, Jesus died the death of takers and traitors, So that we could receive the gift of becoming givers. So the grace of Jesus frees us to give like Jesus. That though he was rich, he became poor for our sakes. Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane put it like this in a sermon many, many years ago that he gave. He was preaching on the subject of generosity and he he had just gone through this whole list of why, of excuses that we give for not wanting uh, to give, especially to those who are poor. And, and he says, well, you, maybe you say, well, I'm not going to give to the poor because they're not deserving. And he says, well, God gave to you and you deserve it. Well, I'm not going to give to the poor because uh, you know, they, they're going to they're waste it. They're going to misuse it. And he says, well, look at what God, didn't he foresee that you would at times misuse and abuse the grace he's given, and yet he still gave it. And then this is the moment he comes to. He says, oh, my dear Christians, If you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and undeserving. Basically because he says, that's who you are in relationship to Christ. He says, Christ is glorious and happy and so will you be too. And McShane says, it's not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember Jesus' own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And in the celebration of communion, the Lord's Supper, we receive with open hands so that we can give. We receive grace so that we can give grace. There are no traders or takers in the communion line. Only people with open hands to receive from a God with whom they cannot trade and who can then in turn give freely to everyone around them.